I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. one of the more permanent decisions you can make in life. Even though about 50% of marriages in America do end in divorce. Oh, here we are, City of Lights, Las Vegas, Atlanta. The world famous Grace in Chapel here to celebrate a promise, a promise of love today. So basically, it's a gamble, a coin flip. Though dozens of people in Las Vegas take those odds every day, at the original Graceland Wedding Chapel, where a shockingly convincing Elvis will officiate your wedding. The last thing I did on a recent trip to Las Vegas, literally my stop right before the airport, was to serve as the sole witness in the holy matrimony of two young lovers. Let's call them Sam and Ginger. In the lobby of Graceland Chapel, where two receptionists handle the flood of incoming calls and the walls are lined with photos of celebrities like John Bon Jovi, who actually got married here, I caught up with the understandably nervous Sam right before his ceremony started. Yeah, I am a fan of Elvis. Really? Very big fan. <laughs> is your uh, future wife a fan of Elvis? Too? Yes, she does. So you guys are excited. Yeah, she's very excited. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. It should be really fun. Yeah, it will be. Good luck. Yeah. Being a natural showman, Elvis does manage to slip in some custom lines to an otherwise fairly traditional ceremony. Tell him, I promise to take you as my hunk of hunk of bread and love. And always love you tender. And never return you to sender. And it should be said that I've been to maybe about two dozen weddings in my life, and it's hard to picture a couple that looked more in love than Sam and Ginger. So being a betting man myself, I'm gonna say they'll make it. So on behalf of the Grace of Wayne Chapel, the suit that I wear, thank you very much. As well as the power of but a state in Nevada. You're married. Yes, congratulations. Brandon, what would you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, eggs and bacon. Did you really? <laughs> no, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> what did I have? A Red Bull and a peanut butter bar is what I actually have. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Breakfast of champions. Brendan Paul is the co-owner and main Elvis at the Graceland Chapel, which has been open since 1947. A lot of guys I meet that do Elvis are huge Elvis fans first and foremost, so they want to like do a living tribute to the guy. But if I look like Sammy Davis Jr., I'd be doing that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. 
you go with what kind of pulse in your lap and you run like hell with them. Elvis and Vegas have been linked in popular culture since he performed 58 consecutive sold-out shows in 1969 at the International Hotel wearing that famous white jumpsuit. And we kind of combined that at the Grayson Chapel, right, where we took the entertainment cap of the world and the wedding cap of the world and put them two together and it makes it, like, fun. Before COVID, I sang at 4,500 weddings in the 2019, in one year, 45. That's 12 weddings a day, every day of the year. That's what that averages. Lord. That's a lot of shaking. <laughs> <laughs> and while Sam and Ginger were truly adorable, Brendan has seen his fair share of memorable couples. I walked in and the kid looked 16. I said, how old are you? He goes, 19. I said, oh, and the woman was about 75. And I said, okay. So I said, um, you, you don't, no guests? And they both looked at me and they go, oh no, no one wanted to be here. And then she took, proceeded to tell me that was her best friend's grandson that she was marrying. And it looked like a 14 year old kid making out with his grandma, but some people that turns them on too, <laughs> you know? But we, we've seen it all. Even though the weddings he officiates are very real, the phenomenon of getting hitched in Vegas is just part of the cultural collage a lot of Americans picture during a quote-unquote wild weekend in Las Vegas. And it totally feeds into the notion that in Vegas, you can be a completely different person. We've had people come to the chapel for a committal and they're like, there's no video of this, right? I go, yeah, no pictures. And I realize, and the way they're acting, they live in two different cities. And I'm like, you know what? I think he's here on business and this girl, he met her and they don't want a record of it, but they are, they're together for the weekend or the week and they, they're just coming in, they want to do something. So again, as long as the check clears, we don't ask too many questions. The idea of the spontaneous Vegas wedding has been featured in sitcoms and entire movies have been based around the concept. Plus, there was this famous commercial. And naturally, the tagline read, what happens here stays here. We went to marry a guy, he came in the day before his wedding was on a Saturday, it was Friday, and I saw him, he goes, I'm just getting married tomorrow. He's like, but I'm in a real bind, man. I go, what happened? He's like, okay, yesterday I go to get my marriage license with my wife. I go to apply and I give him my name and it shows up that I'm already married. And I said, you're already married. I go, what happened? He goes, six years ago, I was here with some buddies. We met some girls. He goes, I thought it was a joke. We were drinking. He goes, we never saw each other after our biggest trip. So there's what happened. Stays here. You see it in a commercial with actors. It's happened, right? This guy, came. I said, what chapel? He goes, I don't remember. But he, he had to get it annulled. He had to find the girl on Facebook. He could barely remember her name. He goes, I've already starting this marriage with my in-laws hating me. But there's a, what happens in Vegas. You know, he didn't know what happened in Vegas, but he was already married. Holy shit. Yeah, hardcore. Oh, wow. <laughs> the What Happens Here Stays Here campaign by the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, commonly referred to as What Happens in Vegas Stays in Vegas, transcended the ad world in a way that few lines of copy ever have. 
there is a 100% chance that you or someone you know, probably your dad, has made a what happens in blank stays in blank joke at some point since the early aughts when this campaign launched. On my Uber ride to my hotel in Vegas from the airport, I kid you not, my very friendly driver asked if I was looking to go somewhere to meet girls. I told him I was in a relationship and he told me what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's a cultural phenomenon that years after it's been retired is still at the forefront of our minds. Uh, Billy, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, I had two eggs over easy and some sourdough toast. Sounds pretty good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. This is Billy Vasiliadis, CEO and principal of RR Partners, a global advertising, marketing, and PR firm based in Vegas. In the late 90s, the city's tourism board reached out to the firm because what was happening in Vegas was staying in Vegas, but for all the wrong reasons. The gilded Rat Pack era glamour that made Vegas a glitzy destination had faded like an old Polaroid. But Vegas was reinventing itself. It's just that no one out there really knew about it. Up until 1980, 81, 82, Vegas had a monopoly. There were no other gambling destinations in the continental United States. And then Atlantic City opened. And so all of a sudden we were dealing with a competitor in gaming. Then as the late 80s rolled around, tribal casinos started to pop up everywhere. Uh, river boats began to get licensed. And so now Vegas is the competition for the gambling dollar. So what the resort folks did here was began building the now themed and mega resorts. So started with the Mirage and then the MGM and Luxor and Bellagio and it became a city of these huge, extravagant, lavish, uh, beautiful resorts. And that sort of took us through the 90s. And very much of the 90s, Vegas uh, marketed its product, its properties, the spas, the restaurants, the fashion. At that point, it became obvious that Vegas needed to compete, not just for the gaming dollar, but for the disposable income dollar. Billy and his team got to researching, holding focus groups across America. They did exercises like asking test subjects to pack a suitcase for a hypothetical but ideal weekend trip to Las Vegas. Really getting them to start talking about what was that experience, that emotional need that Vegas filled for them. And it was during one of these focus groups that the seed of the idea that would become the tourism industry's all-time most popular slogan was born. This was a two-person interview with our planner. And it was two 35, 40-year-old women. And both moms, stay-at-home moms, carpooling, you know, the whole shooting match. And every year, they would tell their families they were going to the Wisconsin Dells for a week. And they would save up money all year long, and, they, you know, that was their escape, the two of them going to Wisconsin Dells. Well, they were coming here. They weren't going to Wisconsin Dells. And they swore up and down. They didn't do anything naughty, inappropriate, didn't violate their vows but they felt that they had this great secret because they were here and this great sense of freedom and it was their own little secret. And that's kind of what inspired what happens here stays here, that people came to Vegas and could tell their story or not tell their story, but they owned their own experience here. And that was, I think, the real power of that, uh, of that campaign and that marketing effort. And so we got to the, what is that emotional connection? 
and the emotional connection, the one thing, was adult freedom. It was the break from convention. It was the sense that I can go to Vegas and if I'm a fancy New York banker that wears suits and dresses because I'm required to every day at work, I go to Vegas and I'm wearing cutoffs and, and shorts. If I'm, but if I'm a carpenter from Des Moines, I come to Vegas to put a suit on because that makes me feel different and special. Vegas gives you permission to transform, wants you to transform, wants you to experience things that you wouldn't otherwise in your daily life. And again, it is an escape. And the differentiator between Vegas and everybody else was that sense of freedom. I'm not really free if I go to New York. Why? I'm expected to see the Statue of Liberty, go to Wall Street, go yeah, do all that stuff, right? Go to Broadway. If I go to Paris, I gotta go to the Louvre, I gotta go on the sand. Here you don't gotta do anything, right? You've escaped what everybody else's expectations. The only ones you have to meet are your own. And here's the best thing, you don't gotta tell anybody. Despite the campaign being a meteoric hit when it launched, it almost got derailed two times before the public even saw it. It was poised to launch in the fall of 2001, but after 9-11, the company rightfully thought it wasn't very appropriate. So fast forward to 2003. The first What Happens Here commercial was scheduled to launch during the Super Bowl, which is, of course, the Super Bowl for ads, too. The NFL, which now, let's note, has a team located in Las Vegas, turned it down as it didn't want to be associated with gambling at all. And now it became the commercial that the NFL banned. And so from there, it took off like wildfire. I mean, Charles Barkley was on saying, hey, that's all that football is good for is betting. And, and everybody else just took off on it. It was, it was insane from then on. But by banning the commercial, the NFL turned the first ad into a viral hit. Everyone wanted to see the commercial the Super Bowl wouldn't air. The ad featured a young woman getting into a limo dressed in a form-fitting sequin dress and writhing seductively over the back seat as if she was enamored by the very spirit of the city. I just love the smell of your limo, Jim. Oh yeah, well it's a new car. I love that new car. I wish it was mine. It smells so good, Jim, this when the driver pulls up to the airport, the woman gets out in a very conservative new outfit, glasses, hair up, and talking business on her phone with a British accent. You see, what happens here stays here. From there, dozens of variations of the commercial came out. A bachelorette party in a limo, no one speaking, all staring at one of their friends who was clearly in the throes of shame only to all bust out in contagious laughter after a few seconds. What happens here stays here. Or St. Peter at the pearly gates, looking over the life of a recently deceased man and noticing some inconsistencies in his log. There seem to be a few weekends missing. Here and there, it's odd. April 1999. October 2004, July 2007. Everything else seems to be good. Come on in. The campaign lasted for more than a decade and even had to adapt its, quote, no share messaging to a generation simply obsessed with social media and, for lack of a better word, sharing. In fact, we did have a campaign there about people not sharing and blowing other people's secrets, right? 
There are consequences for breaking the code. Report friends and learn more at visitlasvegas.com. And while the cultural impact was noticed immediately, for example, Laura Bush, the then First Lady, mentioned the catchphrase on a Jay Leno appearance. Three things I remember. One was Laura Bush, two was Jeopardy, and then three was the New York Times crossword puzzle. I figured if it made the New York Times crossword puzzle, this thing was real. And it actually did what it sought out to do. It brought a ton of new visitors to Las Vegas. Our numbers started to go up exponentially, but more importantly, what what we set out to do was our younger visitors really grew. Our age went down. The other thing that was, I think, a really good proof point was increasingly entertainment became people's number one reason for being here. The spas, it was, you know, later clubs. And gaming actually became a part of their entertainment experience versus their reason for coming. And so we saw average spend going up, we saw retail spend going up, dining spend going up, demand was going through the roof, and it went that way till the Great Recession. Why do you think it had the impact it did? Why do you think it spread in a way that like, arguably few ad campaigns dealing with anything have? I don't want to sound like a PhD because I'm far from it, yeah. um, but I think psychologically it was kind of the perfect time. Americans feeling very burdened, and now 9-11, and now war. And so I think a lot of it had to do with the time that the country was in, the national mood, and the fact that people just needed to escape for a few days, and we told them that's okay, and we have the perfect place to do it, and you don't gotta justify yourself coming here. And I just think it all fell just really right where it needed to. What happens here stays here changed the way tourists visit Las Vegas. And in many ways, reignited our national fascination with the city. You can look at any travel guide and easily locate the shows, the casinos, the upscale restaurants, the indoor roller coasters, and spectacle of Vegas that made it such a cultural phenomenon. But when we get back from the break, we're going to try to find a slice of the under the radar, the art, the culture, the local perspective. And we found the perfect person to help us. Stick around. I met our next guest at night in a dusty parking lot in Chinatown. It was a full moon, and we could see the lights of the strip shining just a few miles away. He had cowboy boots, dreadlocks, a scarf, and a kaleidoscopically colored jacket. And he was going to show me around Vegas's drastically underrated neighborhoods. We arrived for one of our um, windstorms. You know, I had a friend back in the day be like, you know, Vegas is interesting because it gets wind like most cities get rain you look at the air, like you can tell there's a lot of particulate matter. The moon's got kind of a little glow to it. Hi, my name is Brent Holmes, <laughs> and I am a multidisciplinary artist, journalist, podcaster, and general creative roustabout in the city of Las Vegas. I do food writing, cultural commentary, and occasionally do large-scale exhibitions and performance art. And right now, Brent is hosting the new season of the excellent podcast Spectacle, which is covering Las Vegas, its cultural impact, and its long and storied history. My family brought me here. My father is a lifelong professional singer. That's what he does. His name is Clint Holmes. He had a number one hit in the 70s. Wonders that 
And uh, and it became home. It's not an easy town to be an artist in, certainly not a fine artist. We're not a city that people turn to and go, what is the artistic right. uh, quality of, of Las Vegas? Um, yeah, what is the artistic credibility of Las Vegas? I mean, I can give you a running list of incredible fine artists that we have. Are they super famous? Are they well-known nationally? Not a lot of them. We don't have a major fine arts museum. We don't have a major kind of gallery. But we've got, we've got a ton of really compelling, thought-provoking stuff. There's a great local museum here called the Marjorie Barrick Museum of Fine Art on the campus of UNLV. They're absolutely exceptional in the way that they handle museum work and fine art. In Las Vegas, it's kind of rare to meet a quote-unquote real local. And even just by talking with someone like Brent for literally five minutes, I gained a new perspective on the city and the locals that keep this fun engine running 24-7. Again, this is a blue-collar town, though. And I think you have to look at it that way if you're being honest. But that's weird to think about for people on the outside. But you have to look at Las Vegas from this the perspective that casinos are massive structures, yeah. and you don't need a degree to be good at valeting yeah. or, or, or bartending. This is one of the last places in America that you can come, right, and make a relatively acceptable amount of money for your standard of living without seeking higher education. This is a city you can come as a professional musician with any capacity of quality and get a gig working on a stage every night making decent money, making a real paycheck. But also we have acrobats because of Cirque du Soleil. We have, we have, we have large-scale sculptors you know, and fabricators because of all the different things, the different faces the city puts on for all of its different parties and celebrations. So we have incredible artisans, performers, living and working here. Um, But people don't look to us for that. They think, you know, uh, booze and food and, 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 you know, stripper poles and lap dancers or whatever they think. And that's fine, that's what the city wants. Like, we turned the sign off, readjusted it and turned it on and was like, come to Las Vegas for art, I think we'd all be in a lot of trouble, right? I think it's a fascinating place on so many levels. Yeah. Eventually, we made our way out of the wind and into the Chinatown Mall. So yeah, this is the Chinatown Mall, and this is probably like my favorite place in the city because it's off the strip, but it's really convenient for locals. It's an indoor mall because our summers are dreadful, and it's a quick once around. There's a little mall upstairs, a Shaolin Kung Fu place, and uh, and there's like one restaurant in the oldest Boba Tea place. Yeah, like seriously, opened up in like 91. Yeah, is this place filled with tourists like during the day? Mostly you're gonna find locals and people that like live here that come come through. And yes. so it's it's a real local draw. And the Chinatown Mall is interesting. It's been here since the 80s, but but one of like the the cooler things about the Chinatown area is that we have really, really excellent, really compelling Chinese food. And a lot of the reason for that is because we got a lot of professional culinary Chinese immigrants during the 90s when we had the kind of mega casino boom. And they all came here, and then they got citizenship and wanted to start families, and and so we have this great overflow. And I mean, I love LA. Uh, it's got a good Chinatown. I think we have a better Chinatown.
My name is Sufran Chung, and I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I taught from 1975 until 2014. How did Chinatowns begin in Las Vegas? It's a very interesting story because the, in Las Vegas, you didn't have the residential requirements or restrictions that you might have had in other towns, most notably San Francisco and New York. And as a result of this, Chinatowns were always commercial in Las Vegas, not residential. I think around 1995, uh, James Chun of Taiwan opened the Chinatown on Spring Mountain Road. And it's really not a Chinatown, it's an Asian town. It has Korean food, Japanese food, Chinese food, um, Southeast Asian food, and was so successful that all along Spring Mountain Road, a lot of restaurants, a lot of entertainment centers, uh, and so forth opened up to attract not only the Asian crowd, but the non-Asian crowd as well. Las Vegas's Chinatown is basically a sprawling strip mall filled with dozens upon dozens of restaurants and shops that can honestly be a little overwhelming for a visitor. After all, food anxiety is the dizzying freedom of too many restaurants. There's a, there's a Korean hot dog place across the street that's ridiculous. <laughs> Have you ever done this thing? The, no. Uh, the uh, fried Korean corn dog thing where they like cover them in, pe- in like... No, you want to do it? Stuff. Let's, yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. Okay. That sounds, you We're sold gonna, me. It's a, little, it's a little walk, but... Uh, that's fine with me. Khao soy, onigiri, ramen. You can find almost any type of Asian cuisine popular in the United States right here. And they are almost all locally and family-owned businesses. Hi, my name is Kai Vu, and I'm from uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And I'm a chef owner of a District One Kitchen and Bar here in uh, Chinatown, Las Vegas. I mean, you have everything there. You have, you want to have a little fun with karaoke. There are a few spots that you can go to. And as far as dining option, you can't go wrong. I mean, you have almost anything that, you know, Korean barbecue, good Japanese, like, and then that there's some new place open for probata, you know, like it's very mixed and diverse. And you can just go from, you can, you can have a food tour from like three hour dinner, like up and down in Chinatown. And you won't have the same cuisine twice. That, that's how diverse it is. You know, almost 28 years that I live here in Vegas. And just, you know, the past three to five years. And, you know, the whole Chinatown, like, all my friends end up at a restaurant there. You know, Sparrow and Wolf for New American, and you have Braku for Japanese, and we have EDO for Spanish Tapa. So it's very uh, diverse. And Chinatown, again, is just an area that most tourists don't experience. But when looking at Vegas from the perspective of a conduit to personal freedom, to limitless choice, to what people might even consider the now-mythical American dream. It's definitely worth the $8 lift ride from your hotel on the Strip. Understanding Las Vegas, in a lot of ways, is understanding the United States. And understand at least what we think we want, right? Like, we want to get drunk, get laid, eat whatever we want, have the best food, have the best party, and we're willing to fly out into the middle of the desert, where we have no business being at this capacity anyway, right? Um, to experience that. 
And, and it keeps this city alive. We're the, one of the first cities in the country that ever had a mass marketing campaign, right? Like, now every city has some kind of marketing campaign. Even small towns are like, oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Some kind of some kind of like, hey, we're Spiffy. Come hang out. Um, Was that St. Louis's? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 wow. And Las Vegas, at its core, gives you agency to have a vacation of your own, to choose your own adventure. Your only expectation is to have fun. Like, it's really fun because, you know, you go you go to New York and now you're obligated to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art or so on and so forth, so, right? You got to get your you got to get your chips in, right? You got you to check off your boxes. We're in Las Vegas. What are we doing? Las Vegas. That's it. That's different than everywhere else. That's not what most cities are designed for, right? Um, they're designed for industries. Our only major industry is that. And that's where, like, the what happens here stays here thing comes in. But it's about... It's about giving permission to get away with something, right? And, you know, in our lives, the way they are, the way they have been, certainly for the last few years, but in general, you know, getting away with stuff is this, this kind of win. With corn dogs in our stomachs and my mind swirling with the logistics of living in Las Vegas, we hopped in Brent's car and headed to, on my request, his favorite dive bar. Boundary's Tavern is the, I think, second or third oldest continuously operating bar in Las Vegas. And um, it's kind of special in that sense because, like, now it's just a horrible dive. But it smells like cigarettes and doom and it's full of, like, weirdos and hipsters. But but back in the day, guys like Frank Sinatra would show up and, and, and have a drink, Dean Martin, because it was in proximity to what was then the central casino area of the city, which which was downtown Las Vegas. You yeah. know, people people think the strip is like is has always been it, but not really. The old gambling halls that turned into the first you know major casinos in the city all happened in downtown Las Vegas. Downtown Las Vegas, which is actually north of the strip, is in many ways the original city. And one of the more notable locations is Atomic Liquors, which, yes, is another dive bar. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, I didn't. I had a uh, half a pot of coffee. Okay. That's the same. <laughs> That's pretty much mine. Yeah. My name is Chris Gutierrez, affectionately known by the residents of downtown Las Vegas as Tater. I'm the general manager, director of operations here at Atomic Liquors on uh, Fremont East in Las Vegas. Why Tater? Uh, not specifically flattering, but um, they say I look like Ron White. For the record, he is more handsome than Ron White, and he was nice enough to tell us the story of Atomic Liquors, specifically why the original owners transformed their sleepy cafe into a pretty raucous bar. Uh, as the lore goes, they had a really good time hosting cocktail parties around their spot and on the roof as they were watching the atomic flashes of early nuclear tests here in the test site in Nevada. The Nevada desert in America is the scene of the latest atomic test. The story goes that everybody enjoyed watching these flashes from the parties on the roof and it inspired the owners to not only get out of the food service business and into the alcohol business, the bar business, but also to name it Atomic. Do you know anything about the Atomic launch site, like how far away it was? I'm pretty sure we're looking at about 60 miles and it's north of here. So we'd be basically, it's those, those mountain ranges right over here in the distance that you'd see would be the ones you're looking over there to see in the 
But long after the nuclear tests were gone, atomic liquors gained a reputation as one of the great old school hangs in the city. We have a lot of interesting storied as well as mysterious past. So with us functioning as Las Vegas' original neighborhood bar, there would have definitely been your Rat Pack. We have stories of Barbara Streisand hanging out here. We have stories of Hunter S. Thompson hanging out here. The Mint 400 race, it literally occurs right across the street from us, the roll-in, and we party as a result of it every single year. When we're off the strip, a lot of the bars are gonna have gaming. And Chris, AKA Tater, is just a major connoisseur of dive bars in the area. Most neighborhoods have 24-hour bars that are right nestled inside the neighborhood that has a 24-hour kitchen, even four in the morning, to go get anything you like from, say, steak and eggs, all the way to maybe a steak dinner, so to speak, or spaghetti and meatballs or anything like that. It's great that it offers that to our community, our ability to just kind of walk in and check them out at any point in time. If you're looking for a little bit more of a party, I have a, a strong affinity for the team as well as the uh, offerings that they have up at Corduroy. If you're looking for like a retro rock and roll bar sort of feel, smashed with high quality craft cocktails and a cool energetic environment. I like the Griffin a lot. Griffin's like a cool, been probably the big brother on that on that Fremont 6th Street area up there. Has almost like a feel like you're about to grab a beer with Harry Potter or something. Has a cool little like a dungeon vibe with uh, fire pits inside, fireplaces inside. And it should definitely be noted that Atomic Liquor's original location now shares a property with a new bar and Atomic Kitchen fashioned out of a vintage garage. Seeing the old dive bar and the new bar slash restaurant, both are awesome places to hang out, by the way, is like seeing a manifestation of the new Vegas and the old Vegas in one spot. And as I explored downtown Vegas, I saw the major benefits of the new. Writer's Block Bookstore has thousands of books in connecting rooms filled with overflowing plants. I had lunch and worked for a bit in Public Us, a sprawling coffee shop that's practically designed for working remotely. And all of this isn't even mentioning one of the aspects of the city that locals love most. I am of the mind that the most impressive part about Las Vegas is not its towering casinos or its weird fucking cocktails or its incredible food scene. The most impressive part about Las Vegas is that we are surrounded by both state and national parks. We have the Mojave Preserve less than an hour and a half away. In the other direction, we have the Valley of Fire State Park, which has some of the most beautiful rock formations and colors to rock, real painted desert stuff. There's a million other things to love about the city, but what I really adore is if I hop in the car and drive an hour in any direction, I will be confronted with some kind of incredible landscape. Amazing. Let's go check out this bar. All right, so the Huntridge Tavern isn't exactly the type of place you walk in and whip out a recorder. There's a bat mounted on the bar labeled Attitude Adjuster. But Brent and I continued our conversation outside the bar afterwards. I think this place is inherently honest. I think this place is inherently surreal. There's like kind of hyper-reality that happens here that doesn't happen anywhere else. This is a, a, a liminal place where they get to like kind of play for a little while and pretend it being somebody a little bit different or a little more extravagant, a little bit more strange, and then go back home and 
re-engage the mundanity of their existences. Yeah. Um, put on their Vegas outfits. Yeah, they put on their Vegas clothes, they come out, they do a weekend or a couple of days, you know, and then they, they go back home and they're like, you wouldn't believe what I did in Vegas. And, and they, get, they get a story out of it. They get, uh, you know, they get, to, they get to create a little piece of their legacy, a little generative bit of life that they can't place anywhere else in the world because most places don't offer that kind of freedom, you know? So the legacy of what happens here stays here lives on. Your own experience is totally malleable. If you want to take advantage of the strip with the shows and the upscale restaurants, you should go for it. There's a great guide about that on Thrillist, by the way. Or if you want to dig a little bit deeper and go to places like Chinatown or downtown Las Vegas, that's all waiting for you too. If you want to get married by Elvis, you can. That's just the freedom that Vegas offers. Or alternatively, If you want to be woken up at 7 a.m. by a fire alarm on your hotel floor, like I was, that could happen too. What happens in Vegas still stays in Vegas, mostly. Just a quick production note, the interviews with Su Fan Chung and Kai Vu were actually taken from an earlier episode of this podcast about Chinatowns all over the United States. If you haven't heard that one, go check it out. It's on our feed. This show is produced by myself and Mia Fask, edited and mixed by the otherworldly Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to all of my bosses, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, and Emily Feld. That's it for us. Put your tray tables up, leave your shoes on, and we'll see you next week. Bye.